I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Paramang and Kiona people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I just remember thinking, wow, how can you know, there be this much difference. The same variety of being grown in different places and expressing, you know, a different sort of flavour and aroma profiles in, in each of those wines. And, you know, it just sort of triggered a switch for me and I thought, you know what, this is really what I want to do. I want to create this. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Teresa Hoytzenroder is Senior Winemaker at Petaluma Wines. Now, if you drink Australian wine, chances are you've had the pleasure of tasting a wine from Petaluma in their well-recognised yellow label bottles. Petaluma is known for more than just exceptional wines. They are a distinguished brand and symbol of the Australian wine industry. Hi, Teresa. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Shante. Nice to be here. Fantastic. How is your day today? Where are you joining us from? Uh, I'm at the winery and the sun is shining, which is nice because we've had quite a lot of no wintry weather but I think um, there's more to come but these kind of days sort of give you a glimpse that you know spring is just around the corner yeah I someone told me the other day we're gonna get a wet spring and I thought no just don't tell me because my hopes are up and I really need to (laughs) be thinking about slightly sunnier days than we have had Ah, yes but for us as winemakers you know wet spring is a good thing (laughs) Okay, so now I'm in two minds. <laughs> it can be wet for you in Adelaide and it can be bright uh, sunshine for me in New South. That's right. That's, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa, you grew up in Adelaide. How did you come to find your way into your amazing career in wine? Um, well, I guess like a lot of winemakers I know, I sort of didn't start out um, thinking that I was going to end up in the wine industry. I, um, I actually studied science at university um, and did a degree sort of in chemistry and microbiology and um, sort of left uni, went to my first job and went, oh, actually, I don't, I don't think I want to work in a lab for the rest of my life. Um, so I guess it was sort of like a, a journey after that to kind of find, I guess you could say, my calling. And I was lucky enough that after a couple of years, I, um, I um, um, joined, you, you know, there was a job going at Yolumba as a microbiologist. And, and then from there, um, just that's how I fell into the wine industry. So tell me, I mean, a degree in microbiology, what does that now mean for you? And how does that help you in your kind of understanding of grapes and fermentation and things like that. I imagine it's actually really helpful um, in your career now, but give me a bit of an understanding about that. Yeah, I guess um, I um, it, it, it sort of has really shaped my career and, and where I've ended up, I guess, um, because you know, there are so many sort of technical aspects of winemaking and my focus has been predominantly in white and sparkling winemaking for throughout my career. And I think that really has been because of sort of my, you know, um, science background because, you know, there's a lot of detail that's involved, particularly in sparkling winemaking. So, um, you know, it's really shaped who I am as a winemaker, I think, and really sort of influenced sort of my style, I guess, and, and, and how I look at winemaking, I think. Yeah, especially with, like you said, with sparkling and um, and all the um, different understanding that you need to have of 
second ferments and everything going on. I can imagine that, yeah, the more detailed, the better. You were senior winemaker at Yolumba. What did, was your experience at Yolumba? What did that teach you? Oh, look, uh, I think it's really set the scene for, you know, I, I'd say I'd really grown up as a winemaker at Yolumba. I mean, I was exposed to so many different regions, you know, they took fruit from, you know, pretty much everywhere. Um, and, and just sort of grew up through my career there. So I sort of started off in the, in the lab as a microbiologist and then, and then sort of went back and, and, and decided I wanted to become a winemaker and then sort of went back from the ground up from cellar through to, you know, through the ranks of winemaking. So I got exposed to a lot of different wine styles. Yolumba was, you know, a really great mix of sort of history and, you know, you know, it's been around for a long time, um, but also very much forging, you know, new directions with alternative varieties. So I would say that, you know, the depth and breadth of that experience has really shaped my winemaking, sort of, you know, everything about the way I sort of approach winemaking and palate and all of those things. So, yeah, it was, it's, it was an amazing sort of um, journey there. And other than not wanting to be in a lab, which I can understand, what I feel like you could apply microbiology to almost any any kind of career. Why did you choose wine? Did you just think I like to drink wine, and maybe we could work with that? Was there a moment that you kind of flicked a switch and thought wine is pretty delicious? Yeah, so I guess um, I didn't really grow up with sort of drinking wine that much at home. Um, is my sort of my family background, um, but at, during university I was going out. And my boyfriend at the time was um, his family have uh, had a farm just on the outskirts of the Barossa, and um, that they, they very much embraced sort of a wine culture, obviously based where they were. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I became accustomed to having, you know, um, glasses, you know, wine with a meal. And um, and then I guess through university sort of embraced that culture of, you know, going all, away on wine weekends and then sort of further, further developed that into, you know, um, once I'd left university, even though I wasn't quite in the wine industry, then just sort of had, I guess, an external interest, did a few tasting courses. And then the opportunity came up at Yolumba as the microbiologist. So I took that. Um, and then I guess, I, you know, the, the tasting lab at Yolumba was right next door to, to the lab. So I was very much involved with, you know, um, working with the winemakers in terms of the sort of microbiology side of things. I managed all the yeast cultures. Um, and so I did work quite closely with the winemaking team. And then sort of one day there was a tasting set up in the, in the tasting lab next door. And um, one of the young winemakers at the time sort of invited me to sort of try this lineup of Shiraz. Um, and they were from all over Australia. And, and, um, and I just remember being blown away by all the differences between the wines. You know, they're from, you know, regions from everywhere. And I just remember thinking, wow, how can, you know, there be this much difference in, you know, just from being grown, the same variety, but being grown in different places and expressing, you know, a different sort of flavour and aroma profiles in, in each of those wines. And, and that sort of been something you know it just sort of triggered a switch for me and I thought you know what this is really what I want to do I want to create this I want to be involved in all of this and making these decisions and make this happen so it sort of just evolved from there really um and I guess it's something that 
really drives my winemaking. You know, it's a real passion for me that, you know, that's what excites me about winemaking, the sort of flavours and aromas you get, the textural elements, you know. It's just, yeah, it's exciting. It definitely is. And there's just so much that's interchangeable, you know, whether it be vintage to vintage or clone to clone or, you know, like you said, one year strain to the next. So there's no kind of set recipe even when it comes down to sparkling wine do you enjoy making sparkling wine i know croza has a, a wonderful label what's the difference what are the differences in terms of your uh, approach in still wines and sparklings um i i don't necessarily think there's a difference in the way i approach i mean obviously the winemaking styles are different um, and there's a level of technicality with with sparkling wine because you're making the base wine and then the secondary fermentation. So I guess when you're looking at sparkling wine making, you are looking at um, you know how that wine's going to age in some ways, and you've got to sort of visualise what a second fermentation gonna, is going to do to that wine and how that's going to evolve. So you really are looking into the future, say four or five years down the track. Um, mm. And but th- I guess that's no different to a red wine, you know, yeah. a, a premium red wine where you've got to think about what it looks like as a young wine and then how that's going to evolve for, f- you know, four or five years as an aged release. So, um, yeah, y- you're sort of looking for similar things and, and similar approaches, but obviously, you know, um, as applicable to eat, each of the styles you're making, so white, sparkling red, um, which obviously is what I do now at Petaluma. Yeah, and such different sites as well. I'll get to that later, but Petaluma has a long history in South Australia, dating back to 1976. Tell me about how you came to join them and what were your first impressions when you stepped into such an iconic estate? Um, Well, I guess um, I'd sort of got to the point at Yolumba where I was thinking sort of where to next. I'd been there for a very long time. Um, and the opportunity came to to join Petaluma um, about mm, 15 months ago. Um, and I just, you know, it, it's an amazing brand. It has such a history um, in South Australia and indeed in Australia. Um, and I just thought it was, you know, an opportunity too good to miss. I, You know, it gives me an opportunity to work across not only sort of sparkling white, which was probably my sort of um, niche at Yolumba, but, you know, really sort of work outside of that and, and, and do a bit bit of red as well. So, um, and, you know, to work with such an iconic brand, um, it's a bit scary, but, you know, at the same time, it's quite exciting. Oh, definitely is. I mean, Petaluma, for as long as I can remember, has been a feature of wines throughout my career, whether it be something that my father would take out of his cellar in a retail store, wines on a wine list. They seem to feature at every opportunity for wine. And I think that really comes down to how reliable the brand is. You make wines from three distinct regions. Tell me about the work in the the hills, the Coonawarra and the Clare Valley. Oh, well, I, I guess it's just such a, um, an, a, a privilege and opportunity to work with, you know, three very different regions, but, you know, iconic in their own, each in their own way and sort of really quite recognised as distinguished regions in the wine industry, Australian wine. And I guess that sort of goes to the heart of, you know, what Petaluma is about. Um, you know, Brian Crozer established the brand in the late 70s and, and 
he, you know, his philosophy for, for the, establishing the brand was, um, you know, to, to focus on, you know, planting certain grapes in um, certain varieties in the regions they're best suited to, which, you know, seems quite, you know, normal to talk about these days. But, you know, back then that was really quite revolutionary um, and, you know, and he sort of, you know, that terroir, terroir-driven approach, that's terrible pronunciation there, um, you know, we really take that for granted now but, um, and it's really quite a widely accepted part of Australian um, sort of wine landscape and, and approach to winemaking. But back then that was, you know, quite pioneering and I guess that's probably his sort of biggest contribution in some ways to the Australian wine industry. Um, so, you know, to be able to really focus on, you know, region and variety, you know, that synergy of, of excellence for each, and suitability for each region is sort of, you know, what r- really appeals to me. Um, you know, Riesling in the Clare Valley at our Hanlon Hill Riesling, um, vineyard, um, the Piccadilly Valley and the Tears vineyard in um, Chardonnay in the Adelaide Hills and then, of course, um, Coonawarra, We've got our Evans Vineyard, um, which is, you know, Cabernet and Merlot and a little bit of Shiraz. So, you know, to work with, you know, those regions of distinction, distinct, distinction um, you know, is really exciting. There's so much um, to be said for all of those regions. Uh, and, you know, like you said, the Tears Vineyard is like the cream of the crop when it comes to Chardonnay in Adelaide Hills. Kunawara is, you know, incredibly classic Australian Cabernet and Merlot territory and you've got the Hanlon Hill Riesling. Tell me about um, the upcoming vintage releases. So you've got the 2021 Hanlon Hill Riesling, the 2021 Chardonnay, and then the current release is the 2016 Cabernet Savion. What a treat to be able to do a new release and have, you know, that amount of time in bottle. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the vintages of those? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with 21 because we're the most recent first. Um, and I guess we're sort of about, you know, we're not that far from flipping over into into 2022. But I guess 2021 was an amazing vintage to kind of start, you know, step into the, to pe- the role at Petaluma because, you know, it was a fantastic vintage. A lot of people have talked about it as being, you know, one of the classics. Um, and when, you know, with Riesling, the, the key thing particularly about Claire is that, you know, um, that ageability and I think, you know, 2021 will be one of those vintages that has an amazing ability to age. Um, and um, 2019, 2016 and 2019 were in some ways mm, a little similar and then they're both sort of warm vintages. 2019, which is our Tears release, um, current vintage, um, you know, that was really low yielding and sort of in the middle of a, um, you know, a sort of period of dry vintages. We're sort of in a, in a wetter cycle at the moment, um, but, you know, incredibly low yielding. So, you know, quite um, concentrated the flavours um, and, you know, just, you know, that, that site's amazing, the Tears Vineyard. Um, and then 2016 out of the Coonawarra was actually, um, you know, a bit of a riper expression for us, that vintage um, for the Evans Vineyard because it was quite a, again, in some ways like 19, low yielding and quite a warm vintage. So, which, you know, in, in Coonawarra terms is still fairly cool, but, um, yeah, definitely 
probably not as classic as some of the other, you know, maybe 2015 was probably a more classic vintage, but, you know, that's that's the beauty of, you know, um, special sites, distinguished sites as we call them at Petaluma, um, you know, that, that, you know, people want sort of an expression of the vintage as well as the site. So they're not necessarily expecting the wines to be exactly the same every vintage because, you know, that's what makes them special and that sort of unique expression of, of the vineyard and, and the vintage. Um, so, you know, at that level, people want to see those differences. But I think the sort of key thing that ties everything together when we're talking about, you know, those special sites is that, um, you know, there is a there is a what I like to call a DNA sort of fingerprint of the vineyard that you kind of see consistently throughout um, you know, if you look at sort of um, vertical tastings and I've been sort of privileged to be able to look at that for, you know, some of the older vintages, um, verticals of Hannon Hill Riesling and um, and uh, the Evans Vineyard in particular, you know, you sort of see the variations sometimes in the winemaking styles through the decades, but there is always this sort of, you know, consistent what I call the fingerprint of the vineyard that sort of shines through that sort of underpinning thing that makes that site so special and unique is always expressed. Yeah, I think you really see that. And I, I particularly always feel that about the Hanlon Hill Riesling. It's just got this incredible balance between floral elements and that kind of citrus blossom, but then this racy acidity, but really good ripeness of fruit as well i feel like it's just that reasoning you can count on year after year it's going to lay down forever but it's going to drink really well if it was on release as well um and the cabernet interesting you know kunawara has been on my mind for a little bit because i haven't been there in some time but the 2016 cabernet i, I don't know if it's also that proportion of merlot but it gives it like a real plummy like really juicy purple fruit element but then you've got all the hallmarks of excellent structural cabernet and again it's a wine you think gosh this is drinking so well now but i could easily just pop it down and go 20 years from now this is going to be spectacular absolutely and and i think that's the key thing when i've looked at those verticals of the evans vineyard there is you know it's like a history i I saw sort of vintages backdating to sort of like the late 80s in through the 90s 2000s and so on and it just you know you see this it's like an evolution of you know Kunawara history and the way we were making the wines back then you know the way we make the wines you know they were really quite um what I call methoxypyrazine was you know, that really leafy herbaceous very Bordeaux style um back in the sort of late 80s and and Kunawara has really evolved in in and, and you sort of see that in the in the winemaking style but that sort of underpinning sort of structure the the, the tannin structure that comes off that vineyard um that's that that remains the same no matter the sort of winemaking I guess um trends if you like um yeah. which is what really struck me when I looked at those wines over you know uh, um you know, a, a range, a vertical range. I think it's can't be more important than for anyone else than for you to actually go back and look at all those vintage wines. You know, it's it must be so important to understand the brand. Tell me how how do you approach? Say, if you would make wines on your own label under Teresa, and then to make wines under Petaluma, how important is it to kind of balance? you know, your little input, but also really capture a brand and, and continue forward with that. How do you even go about doing that? Uh, look, I think part of it is, um, 
you know, the vineyard for me is really what makes the decision, you know, in a lot of, you know, in a lot of ways. Like you're really guided by the vineyard because you can't change the underlying character of, of the vineyard that comes through. So it doesn't, you know, there will be winemaking nuances and every winemaker wants to put their sort of um, – stamp on things if you like um but i don't think you can ever override what comes from the vineyard i mean you know that that that's what's speaking that's what makes special sites you know so distinctive um and i think um my time at yalumba has really probably made me respect that in a lot of ways because you know we had wines that had been made for for many decades um and you know the, you, you ha- I think the thing that Yolumba taught me was that, you know, you sort of respect that heritage, but as a winemaker, you always wanting to keep the wines moving forward and evolving. Um, but as I said, it, it's really the vineyard that sort of drives that and the winemaking overlay is just over the top. So I think it's very not that respect I suppose it's not respectful you you need to respect the vineyard um so it's not really about the winemaker it's about what the vineyard sort of gives you um and and handling that I think I remember someone one of my colleagues was was taking on um a a quite a you know well-known brand and um our previous boss basically where you know was like don't stuff it up because like you know People expect these things, but, you know, our job is to just nurture what comes from the vineyard. Um, and so if you respect that, then, you know, that's – you're going to make a great wine. Yeah. I, yeah, I have to agree with you because it, it, at the end of the day, you're joining a long legacy of, of people that have made it and you don't want to have that moment where it's like, well, these 10 years – the brand went out the window because, you know, it, we saw so much of this. You want to just be able to add to the to the lineage, don't you? And, and you're right, the vineyard is something that you, is the thread that is consistent throughout all of those, all of those years. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and people, ex- you, you have to sort of respect what's gone before you because people make, you know, the wines have been made that way, you know, because of you know, tr- it's it's trial and error as we go along, you know each winemaker is evolving the wine, but things have been done a certain way, or um, because you know someone's made that discovery, and you, you kind of don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You kind of want to just keep moving the wines forward. Um, so yeah, so it, it's a bit of column A, a bit of column B in terms of respecting that, listening to the vineyard, and then kind of putting your own gentle stamp on it if you like yeah I I like that philosophy and I think I was reading that you said that creating wines for you are about creating wines that are refined elegant and classic and reflective of the regional vineyard and I thought all of those things sound like something from you but they also sound like something that that really ties into representing an iconic Australian brand as well. So it it kind of, yeah, it said something about you and then I thought, but this is perfect for for such an, an amazing estate as well. Um, Teresa, if you could paint two pictures for me, what are some of the things that you absolutely dread in your job that you do and what's kind of the the cherry on the top? What's a day in the life that's just like, this is amazing, this is why I do it? Um, the dread is probably doing things like this. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> live audience. 
maybe not life, but um, yeah, um, I don't think that ever, uh, yeah, that that's not why I sort of got into winemaking, that sort of like public speaking, but it goes with the territory, I think. Um, I mean, it gets easy with time, but yeah, that's that's probably the, main, the thing that I don't enjoy as much. I'd much prefer talking to sort of a small group of people, you know, who are with me, um, you know, around a tasting bench and just, you know, sharing ideas and thoughts about the wines. Um, so I guess that's one thing I really love. But I guess probably the thing, um, the moments I have are more when I'm like, you know, driving in the car around during vintage, like, you know, um, going to the vineyard, getting out to see what, you know, tasting and and then thinking about, how, you know, what the vintage is going to be and that sort of um, anticipation of, you know, how are the wines going to turn out and, and you know, what, what the new the next challenge is, is going to be. So I think, yeah, that, that's probably the, the, the highlight. And, and, you know, if you don't like doing vintage as a winemaker, then you probably need to um, find another job. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's no real getting away from that, is there? No, no, but <laughs> well, it's have, the most exciting bit. Yeah, I mean, so much is happening. It's all all at once. Lots of problems need to be solved, but there's the kind of adrenaline that goes with, with it, I suppose. And at, at the end, you've got a good group of people you can sit back with and know you went through it all together. Exactly, exactly. It's very character building. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for somebody that doesn't like doing podcasts, I have to say you've done an incredible job. And I feel like that if I, if we ever meet in person, I definitely owe you a beer or your PR person owes you a beer for <laughs> roping you into it today. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I think that there's, there's some people that love to be able to talk and love to be able to, you know, share stories or talk about themselves and some people that don't. So it actually says a lot about, about you and how you love to do your job but you don't necessarily want to hear the sound of your own voice and to be honest I don't even like the sound of my own voice so I don't like to listen <laughs> to mine so I understand what you're talking about <laughs> oh dear Teresa if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life what would you choose to drink and why oh um uh probably mm, uh number one is champagne um I remember um there was a quote we had in the tasting room, like a, on a little plaque, which which has always stayed with, with me. I think it's the the Madame Bollinger quote of, and I can't remember it word for word, but it was something like, "I drink, you know, I drink champagne, um, like when I'm happy, when I'm sad, when I've got company." Basically, any time. Uh, that, that's kind of just it's not not the right not right words, but um, yeah. And I remember that always stayed with me, and it's it's exactly how I feel about champagne because I think it can go with any meal, any time, and if and I would never get yeah. get sick of drinking it. I'm going to bring that quote up for you because it's so good, and I I f completely forgot about it as well. It says, "I drink champagne when I'm happy and when I'm sad. Sometimes I drink it when I'm alone. When I have company, I consider it obligatory." I trifle with it when I'm not hungry and drink it when I am. Otherwise, I never touch it unless I'm thirsty. <laughs> so, in other words, you always drink champagne. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And it really with me, that quote. Yeah, it's a great one. Um, uh, and uh, second would be gin. Um, I know most winemakers always talk about beer, but I'm not a massive beer drinker. Um, so, gin is kind of my knockoff go-to 
obviously when I'm not drinking champagne or, um, you know, just when I need something other than wine. <laughs> um, and I guess, yeah, and probably the other would just be Chardonnay, I think. Um, it's just a variety that I just never get sick of drinking. Um, and, I mean, it'll be followed closely by Riesling, I think, but you know, I think Chardonnay edges Riesling out just. Yeah, I actually spoke to Brian Crozer not long ago and I asked him why is it that Chardonnay just ticks all the boxes and he actually said something about that it's like a red wine, that it, it drinks like a red wine does is in it has the texture and it has the freshness and the fruit and and I thought you know that's it. it 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 just has all these different elements that make it a complete drink and I thought it was a really good way to look at it because you're right if you don't just had to have one drink sometimes you're like chardonnay just and then you fall back on it don't you, you think if I can't decide I'll have a chardonnay yeah yeah I don't, yeah it's just it just makes me happy so I love drinking it. And then you mu- you must really enjoy making one of, I think, one of the top Chardonnays in the country then from the Tears Vineyard because that really is incredibly special. Um, what what You said 2019's the vintage. How is the following vintage going for you of the Tears? Uh, well, the next release will be 2021. Um yeah, so we won't, we won't, we're, we're not making a 20. So, um, but yeah, that's just sitting in bottle at the moment. So that'll be released next year sometime. But yeah, um, so it's just quietly mellowing away until it's ready for release. Perfect. Well, I can understand that. We're going to not even talk about 2020, pretend like it never happened. And we look forward to the 2021 release of The Tears. But Teresa, thank you so much for spending your time with me. I really appreciate it. I hope it hasn't been too torturous for you. And uh, like <laughs> no, I said, I feel bad to say that. <laughs> not at all. Not. I completely understand. And the next time I see you, I will buy you a gin and tonic and we can have a chat face to face. Definitely. That sounds great. <laughs> thank you for your time and cheers to you, Teresa. No worries. Thanks, Shante. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.